MSW Media. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say of Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broke? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel, or should we say today, special counsels. It is Sunday, (laughs) Sunday, December 10th, 2023. I'm Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. Nice teaser there. We're getting very professional with this. Uh, (laughs) We have a lot to cover, as, as always, including Jack Smith's motion to admit evidence from before and after the D.C. conspiracy under Rule of Evidence 404B and Trump's opposed effort to stay the entire proceeding, including the entire pretrial schedule. Yeah, sure, buddy. Um, And well, I mean, he might get some temporary administrative stays while he appeals, but we also have jury notices going out to the District of Columbia. My friend John Allen over at NBC had somebody in the district show him uh, something he got in the mail, and all the dates line up with uh, what's going on in D.C. in the Trump case, and so they're pretty sure <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> that it's that. It's that. Um, so they are now testing the jury pool, and we also have a ruling from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, that's the court above Judge Chutkin, on the don't call it a gag order, and we'll talk about that. We've got a couple of SEPA uh, filings, uh, and I think it's reaching an inflection point down in Florida, with the classified documents case, uh, because now Donald Trump doesn't want what normally happens, which is SEPA Section 4, to be ex parte between Jack Smith and Judge Cannon. He wants to be all up in that program with his tiny little hands. So he's filed a motion, and we'll talk about that uh, to unseal the SEPA filings uh, for Section 4. And uh, that is kind of, like I said, it's an inflection point down there. This is probably the first decision Judge Cannon will make that isn't just, you know, a nickel and dime delay decision. This is a big one. Yeah, it shows us like it's it's delay relevant for sure. But it's like, is she going to completely depart from well-established precedent, law and practice? And that's really what's at stake here. If if the answer to that is yes, man, we are are in for a strange, a mighty strange trip. Yeah, it is appealable and already a stranger trip than we're then we're in. Like, Jane, get me off this crazy thing. That's right. Um, Also, we'll be throwing a party for patrons of MSW Media Shows, uh, patrons of this program, patrons of The Daily Beans, Clean Up on All 45. It's going to be April 20th in D.C. So if you've been on the fence about supporting our shows, now would be a good time so you can get an invite. We'll be picking up the tab for dinner and drinks. We'll have some great guests speaking, including me, Andy McCabe, Pete Strzok. That's you, Andy, by the way. Oh, that's me? Glenn- Uh-oh. I better start working on something. <laughs> Glenka, start preparing your remarks. Uh, Glenn Kirshner will be there. Uh, Capitol Police Officers Harry Dunn and Danny Hodges. Olivia Troy will be there. There'll be more guests added. Um, and we will send out notices for RSVPs probably in January, maybe the first week of February. There's limited space, so it'll be a first-come, first-served basis. And we won't have plus ones because that'll cut our guest list in half mm-hmm. for patrons. So if you want to bring somebody, they will need to sign up to become a patron too. It's the fairest way we could come up with this. Yeah. Uh, any level patron 
gets an invite. You don't have to be like a hundred dollars a minute. It's you, you know, which and we have tons of those. Mm-hmm. No, we don't. But any level, <laughs> any level, and that's patreoncom wrote. Supporting independent media is supporting democracy. All right, I really want to start with. I know the the don't call it a gag order thing is big news, but Jack Smith's four hundred four B filing in the DC case. I want to start there because it gives us a, a, a more of a look at his case in chief and some of the evidence he intends to introduce at trial. But Andy, first, let's talk about what Rule 404B is. Yeah, this is super important. It's one that uh, I think defense attorneys generally loathe because they see it as kind of the prosecutor's like backdoor to getting evidence in front of the jury that they otherwise wouldn't be able to. But so basically, Rule of Evidence 404B generally prohibits the prosecution from introducing evidence of prior crimes and wrongdoings, right? It provides that uh, act evidence is not admissible to prove the character of a person in order to show action and conformity therewith. And that basically means like, AG, if you're on trial for, uh, you know, dealing narcotics uh, and you used to, you know, you in, in years earlier, you had another conviction for stealing cars. They can't enter the evidence of the car theft as a simply to show the jury, look, she's a bad person. She did this once. She did uh, committed a crime once before. Therefore, it's more likely that she committed a crime here. Um, evidence of prior bad acts cannot be admitted at trial to show the defendant's propensity to commit crimes similar to the offense in question. So in other words, 404 prevents or 404B uh, bars character evidence, right? Mm. Juries are not likely to afford the presumption of innocence to a known criminal. Uh, Nonetheless, there are many exceptions to 404B, and that's usually where the fighting starts. Right. I get it. So that's why the defense objected. I remember during George Floyd's trial when the prosecutors tried to question witnesses about Floyd's prior criminal history. That's exactly right. Exactly right. And like many rules of evidence, they begin with the ban, right? Think about hearsay. You cannot enter testimony. You know, if you're going to enter testimony, you have to have the person who who was there. You can't testify about something I said to someone else, right? And, right. and you can't offer testimony like that to prove the truth of the matter asserted. Or like the emails, like the Eastman emails, you know, a lot of times emails are considered hearsay and, but they're, you know, so you start with what's banned, but then they right. have lists of exceptions. Start right? with what's banned and then you have a million exceptions. And that's what, how 404B works. Exceptions to the 404B, the 404 ban on uh, this sort of evidence are motive, uh, evidence of, oppor- evidence that would prove opportunity, evidence that would prove intent, Evidence that proves preparation or planning, uh, evidence that proves knowledge, identity, or absence of mistake or accident. Mm. And that's, that's why lot. Jack Smith filed this notice. Yeah, it's a lot of big categories there. So there's a lot of room for prosecutors to squeak things in through one of those exceptions. Yeah. And this isn't a motion asking for leave of court. He's not asking for permission to introduce this as evidence. It's a heads up. He's He's saying... Yeah. I am giving you notice. Here, here's how he opens. He says the government will provide the defendant and court extensive advance notice of the intrinsic evidence it plans to introduce at trial, including through his, its exhibit and witness lists, motions in limine, and detailed trial brief setting forth the government's planned trial presentation. In an abundance of caution, 
The government below notices evidence that, although intrinsic to the charged crimes, pre or post dates the charged criminal conspiracies. If the court were to find that any part of the noticed evidence below is extrinsic, the evidence is also admissible under federal rule 404B because the government will offer it not to show the defendant's criminal propensity, meaning this isn't evidence to show that he, you know, he's likely to commit these crimes again because he did it in the past, but to establish his motive, intent, preparation, knowledge, absence of mistake, and common plan. That's exactly right. right. So he's, he's saying here, here's all my evidence and I want you to know about it ahead of time. Again, this is a matter of judicial economy. He's trying to tee up the fights over these pieces of evidence early in the process so it doesn't slow down the trial. But he's also saying if by some chance the court finds this evidence extrinsic, which means outside the scope of the charge conduct, well, then it also qualifies under 404B. So he's kind of covering both bases. Yep, yep. And he outlines six categories of this type of evidence uh, that they plan to introduce at trial. And it's really fascinating because we know from his past filing opposing Trump's motion to strike January 6th riot language from the indictment. Remember, Trump wanted all that yep. taken out, saying it was prejudicial and incendiary and I didn't do it. And you didn't charge me with insurrection. Mm-hmm. He noted, uh, Jack Smith noted uh, in that in his opposition to that that he intends to prove Donald Trump was responsible for the attack on the Capitol. So this is really, I think, intrinsic evidence. But like you said, if the court finds it's extrinsic, you know, and doesn't, you know, isn't part of the criminal conspiracies, that it can still get in under 404B because it shows intent and knowledge and all those other things. That's right. That's right. And it is cool because when we saw that opposition to Trump's motion that you referenced, that was the first hint of like, ooh, he's going down. He's he is shooting at the big target with this thing. He's going right at responsible for the insurrection. Well, this motion really lays out the receipts, right? You get the details of kind of how he's going to do that. It's the first kind of semi roadmap that we've gotten. So the first category is historical evidence of the defendant's consistent plan of baselessly claiming election fraud. And this is one of those situations where the DOJ plans to use Trump's own words against him. Uh, And even though he made the statements before the conspiracy, these statements would therefore be admissible under 404B because they demonstrate the defendant's common plan of falsely blaming fraud for the election results he does not like and his motive, intent, and plan to obstruct the certification of the 2020 election results and illegitimately retain power. And so Jack Smith then gives some examples of these statements. So, for example, uh, as early as November 2012, the defendant <laughs> issued a public tweet making baseless claims that voting machines had switched votes from then-candidate Romney to then-candidate Obama. During the 2016 presidential campaign, the defendant claimed repeatedly, with no basis, that there was widespread voter fraud, including through public statements and tweets. For instance, on October 17th, 2016, tweeting, of course, there is large scale fraud happening on and before Election Day. Why do Republican leaders deny what's going on? So naive. Yeah. And he he won that uh, election. <laughs> so, and, you know, and, and yeah. even that I remember that in, in the Mueller I remember investigation. That. <laughs> You remember? Yeah. Um, I remember in the South. I'm sorry. The Mueller investigation, there was a 
some, I think, Facebook messages between Don Trump Jr. and Julian Assange. And Julian Assange is like, I think it's interesting not conceding that you lost the election. If your father loses, he should say he didn't lose. And then he can blame the media and call it rigged. Like, it's, it, this has been it's their plan out. for yeah, it's, forever. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, he, and, you know, and in 2020, he had others doing it for him as well. I remember that that appearance that Bill Barr made on Wolf ugh. Blitzer's show where he basically ranted and raved about, oh, no, you know, um, what is it? The mail-in ballots are rife with fraud. Everybody knows that. And Wolf pressed him on it like, OK, give me an example. And he's like, well, well, everybody knows. And then, of course, a couple no. months later, he's like, yeah, no evidence of fraud. Sorry about that. Yeah. And and that might come up in trial, too. He's only given a couple of examples here just to you know, give examples of the kinds of evidence he he wants to introduce. But because because that kind of stuff happened during the conspiracy, I don't think it would necessarily need to come in under 404B. No. Uh, but the next category is historical evidence of the defendant's common plan, his plan to refuse to commit to a peaceful transition of power. And remember, a common plan is admissible under 404B exceptions, even though these statements happened before the conspiracy. And Jack Smith says, quote, the government will offer proof of this refusal as intrinsic evidence, intrinsic evidence of the defendant's criminal conspiracies because it shows his plan to remain in power at any cost, even in the face of potential violence. And he gives some examples here as well. September 2020, a news conference. I think it was Brian Karam asked him in the press room, um, are you going to commit to a peaceful transfer of power? And he refused. And then, yeah. you know, he, he obfuscated, well, the ballots, you know, was, uh, you know, he just he didn't answer the question. Right. And in the presidential debate in 2016 with Hillary, he was asked whether he would accept the results, to which he responded, I'll look at it at the time. <laughs> and the debate moderator said, yeah, but there's a tradition in this country, uh, one of the prides of this country, the peaceful transfer of power, that no matter how hard fought a campaign is at the end, you concede. And that the country comes together in part for the good of the country. Are you saying you are prepared now to commit or you're not prepared to commit to that principle? And Trump said, what I'm saying is I will tell you at the time. I'll keep you in suspense. OK, that's what he said. I'll keep you in suspense. Um, and I, and what's interesting, too, is, you know, we've got Flynn testifying to the January 6th committee. Liz Cheney asking him, do you th believe in the peaceful transfer of power? And he took the fifth. He played the fifth. And then what's interesting, too, is in Judge, Judge Chutkin's ruling against total presidential immunity, the monarchy motion, as we called it, she brought up Washington's speech, mm -hmm. his farewell speech. Um, and so, you know, that's it's all tied kind of together there. Jack Smith concludes this category by saying the defendant's consistent refusal to commit to the peaceful transition of power dating back to the 2016 campaign is admissible evidence of his plan, his plan right. to undermine the integrity of the presidential transition process when faced with the possibility of an election result that he would not like, as well as his motive, intent and plan to interfere with the implementation of an election result uh, with which he is not satisfied. Other things that could come in during the conspiracy uh, GSA Emily refusing to sign off on the transition, refusing to give transition mm -hmm. offices to President Biden. Like that's all his plan. Like he was planning this premeditated planning to not, you know, participate in the peaceful transition of power. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's going to be very powerful evidence in, in telling a complete story to the jury. And it's clear why the special counsel wants to get this stuff in.
yeah, it really goes toward intent and motive and all that stuff. And so when we read that filing about striking the language and the opposition to it and Jack Smith saying, I'm going to prove you wanted that riot to happen and you caused it, this all goes to that. So. All right, everybody, we need to take a quick break. We have, uh, I think, three, four, five, six, four more categories of evidence we want to discuss, and then we'll talk about the gag order. We'll talk about the SEPA stuff. We have a lot to get to today, but we have to take this break. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Okay, we're back, and here comes Category 3. It's evidence of the defendant and co-conspirator's knowledge of the unfavorable election results and motive and intent to subvert them. Yeah, so here Jack Smith says, The government also plans to introduce evidence of an effort undertaken by an agent and unindicted co-conspirator of the defendant who worked for his campaign. And that person is then referred to as the campaign employee to immediately following the election, obstruct the vote count. On November 4th, 2020, the campaign employee exchanged a series of text messages with an attorney supporting the campaign's election day operations at the TCF Center in Detroit where votes were being counted. In the messages, the campaign employee encouraged rioting and other methods of obstruction when he learned that the vote count was trending in favor of the defendant's opponent. Uh, The Hmm. paper goes on to read, then there are several uh, redacted lines and it continues. 
The government will also show that around the time of these messages, an election official at the TCF Center observed that as Biden began to take the lead, a large number of untrained individuals flooded the TCF Center and began making illegitimate and aggressive challenges to the vote count. Thereafter, Trump made repeated false claims regarding election activities at the TCF Center, when in truth, his agent was seeking to cause a riot to disrupt the count. Quote, this evidence is admissible to demonstrate that the defendant, his co-conspirators and agents had knowledge that the defendant had lost the election, as well as their intent and motive to obstruct and overturn the legitimate results. Yeah. And those redaction bars could be from context. I take them to be that unindicted co-conspirator who doesn't have a number. And we'll get to that in a second. Mm-hmm. Um encouraging a riot or talking to somebody about starting a riot because that's what's jack smith says he's going to be able to prove here and then also perhaps the connection that trump knew about it or somehow participated in it and you know as i said this this co-conspirator doesn't have a number this newly named unindicted co-conspirator um he he does he's not referred to as co-conspirator three or co-conspirator six he doesn't have a number that tells me he is not one of the unindicted co-conspirators we already know about. This is somebody new. And the reason I think that is because later in the filing, Jack Smith names co-conspirator one. And we know who that is. So it's like kind of like how um, when we were reading the indictment and we were trying to figure out who the six unindicted co-conspirators were, and Mark Meadows was named later in the indictment, and that yeah. led us to believe he's not one through six, or he would have been named, or he would have been called a one unindicted co-conspirator and given a number. And so based on past testimony and evidence from the January 6th committee on the attack on the Capitol, I think it's Mike Roman, because he was texting about the TCF Center with campaign lawyer, the last name of Hit. And to me, I, I that makes it clear to me that this is Mike Roman, um, which means we, we had a little bit, we still had a little bit of a... <laughs> A little Not bit of knowing who's pool on who number six was, <laughs> who you take Mike Roman out was. of that slot now. It's... There were only two possible people it could be, which was Boris Epstein and Mike Roman. So that means by congratulations, process of Boris, come on down. You are <laughs> unindicted co-conspirator. You can well, take what's behind now. <laughs> door number three or what's in the box. Um, that's right. Oh my yeah, god. Yeah. So that's kind of what I think is going on there. But that was a, a sort of a thing that kind of flew under the radar that this this is a new this is a, a seventh person. Now, whether he's cooperating, which it sounds like he might be if Jack has all this evidence, unless Jack just got it from his phone and maybe he hasn't charged this guy yet. But that we know as of August first, twenty twenty three, the DC investigation continues. So we don't know if he's going to be indicted in a mop-up case or if he's cooperating. We, re- we really just don't have any idea. Yeah. Referring to him as an unindicted co-conspirator, I find I think it's unlikely they would have done that if he was a straight-up cooperator. So he may, his ah. status may still be kind of uh, in the wind, as we say. But um, Well, because yeah. remember he was like trying to cut a deal with the Fulton County and then said, no, he turned down her deal and there yeah. isn't a, a cooperation deal between Mike Roman and Fonnie Willis at this point. So I think it's probably up in the air with the feds, too. Yeah, that's my guess. And Andy, one more question. This happened on November 4th. Why is this in the 404B notice? Because that seems like it's during the conspiracy. Or is it so on the edge that maybe the court might think it's extrinsic and so they explain it? Yeah, so I think it it is on the edge. And it's 
and it's pretty close to the edge. It might be on the edge because um, they may not have a super strong link between Mike Roman. On the one hand, him texting the 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 dude at the voting center is solid, but how do you tie that back to Trump? Like, they may not have great evidence saying indicating that Mike Roman did that at Trump's direction or something like that. So, assuming that it's close to the line. Um, I think that this highlights what we talked about before, that uh, Smith is including it here basically to cover his bases, right? So he has that line earlier in the motion where he says, if the court were to find that any part of the noticed evidence is extrinsic, meaning outside the scope of the charge conduct, the evidence is also admissible under federal rule of evidence 404B. So he's kind of erring on the side of caution. He may try to get all this, Mike, presume Mike Roman stuff in as just standard trial evidence. Um, but if he gets, if he incurs flack with that, he's now put them on notice that it's 404B uh, qualified. Yeah. Or it might also be like, this is such a big, huge piece of evidence. Maybe it's like, um, hey, Trump, if you, you know, so if, in case you want to file a motion in limine to keep this out, I'm letting you know about it. We plan on using it. Yeah. Um, kind of a way to smoke out the big pieces of evidence he wants to put in so that Trump later can't go, it wasn't flagged in discovery. I didn't exactly. get it. I didn't know about it. Um, I, yeah. I I would have filed a motion in limine, but meh, 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 so now I'm going to appeal and have it over, you know, whatever his weird arguments would be. It'd just kind of be like, here it is in black and white. We told you. We it told all, you well yeah. before motions in limine were due. And I think that basic approach is really interesting because we're going to talk about this in a little bit in our comparison of special counsels, but this is Jack Smith's way, right? He does everything ahead of time. He's not playing hide the monkey with anything. He's putting this stuff out there, basically saying, hey, if you want to fight over this evidence, let's do it now so that when we get to trial, everything is smooth. You're not going to see any like uh, revelations at trial. Oh, we just found a new witness we didn't know about. I mean, he's, he's, going overboard to be as scrupulous and upfront and transparent as you can possibly be as a prosecutor. And I think that's absolutely the right way to do it here. There's no room for like heroics and playing games. He has got to, he's got to toe the line on every detail. And I think that's what you see here. Yeah. I just hear Marissa Tomei in my cousin Vinny. It's called disclosure, you dickhead. He can't, he's not allowed any surprises. I just, <laughs> I love that movie so much. I watched that like a year and a half ago and just loved it all over again. I think it was in a hotel or something. There's nothing else on. I was like, wow, this is masterful. It's wonderful. I'm so glad she got the Academy Award for that. Okay. On to category four, pre and post conspiracy evidence, stuff that happened before and after the conspiracy, that the defendant and his co-conspirators suppressed proof that their fraud claims were false. Not just ignored, suppressed proof their fraud claims were false and retaliated against officials who undermined their criminal plans. I'm thinking of firing Chris Krebs. I'm thinking of, you know, um, ignoring the, not publishing the two research firm reports he got that said (laughs) that there were uh, no, there was no voter fraud. Disallowing, not telling, um, you know, Pat Cipollone and Pat Philbin about some meetings he was having at the White House with Rudy and Sidney, you know, like that kind of stuff, right? He said this indictment um, provides evidence that the defendant repeatedly sidelined advisors and officials who told him or the public the truth about the election results and who pushed back on his false claims. 
the defendant and his co-conspirators and agents' aggression in stifling dissents against election fraud claims before, during, and after the charged conspiracies is admissible to demonstrate the defendant and his co-conspirators' knowledge that their fraud claims were false. So that's important, right? Like just silencing dissenting voices saying there was no fraud. Yeah. The jury then can infer that he was knew knew there was no fraud and was, you know, that the claims were false. It definitely goes to kind of guilty knowledge. When you're doing things to cover something up, you know that that thing if it's discovered is bad. Um, So that's what's happening here. And I I do believe like this thing, basically, as I read this paragraph, you you hear in your mind, uh, judge the (laughs) the prosecution calls Chris Krebs to the stand. Mm -hmm. That's going to have such a perfect uh, fit for what they're describing here. I I yeah. And Johnny McEntee's memos um, to fire these people who wouldn't go along with his plans, including Esper, the secretary of defense, Krebs. Yeah. Um, you know, disinviting, like I said, the Pats, uh, Mm -hmm. Philbin and Cipollone to any of these meetings that and Hirschman (laughs) that shows. So, cause we were always talking about like, well, he's only surrounding himself with idiots who agree with his stupid theories. That's actually evidence that, you know, that what you're doing is BS and that's why he wants to bring it in. All right. Category five is pre and post conspiracy evidence of the defendant's public attacks on individuals, encouragement of violence and knowledge of the foreseeable consequences. The defendant has established a pattern of using public statements and social media posts to subject his perceived adversaries to threats and harassment. And to that, I can only say, oh, yeah, he do. (laughs) You have a little experience with that yourself? just a little. I hate to make it all about me all the time, but, you know, it's about me. So anyway. You can file an amicus brief. I can can (laughs) confirm. Andy McCabe can confirm. It would be a short brief. I'm like, yeah, yeah, props to the special counsel, for real, same. Okay. Same these. <laughs> Goes <Twinsies>. on. <laughs> so this includes Trump's September 2020 pronouncement to the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by, and his attacks after the conspiracy against Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. Uh, the government will introduce such evidence to further establish the defendant and his co-conspirators' plan of silencing and intent to silence those who spoke out against the defendant's false election fraud claims. It also constitutes after-the-fact corroboration of the defendant's intent, because even after it was incontrovertibly clear that the defendant's public false claims targeting individuals caused them harassment and threats, the defendant persisted, meaning that the jury may properly infer that he intended the result. That's cool to me. I didn't realize that that was a thing. So if he puts out a tweet... And, you know, Judge Engeron gets 237 single space type pages of threats and then he does it again. That shows his intent to cause it. Yeah, you have a much harder time saying I didn't intend to cause him any threats or any problems. Because otherwise you stop, right? You you stop doing it. Yeah. And it's kind of an interesting bank shot here. Um, There's like you, you can see referenced in these in these details. There's multiple exceptions of 404B kind of touched upon in each of these uh, recitations. So he's not putting all of his eggs in one basket for any of this evidence. He's kind of covering it right. uh, with a bunch of different, uh, you know, it's not, it's it's indicative of planning, but it's also goes to intent. Right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And he doesn't even have to prove motive, but here nope. he is. All right, category six. And this one I think is one of the most important ones because it really puts 
the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and Donald Trump as conspirators together. Um, Post-conspiracy evidence, the defendant's steadfast support and endorsement of rioters. Okay. Mm. Now, Jack Smith will cite examples of Trump's verbal and financial support. Financial, like, you know, how he pays the January 6th choir to sing the national anthem at his rallies. His verbal support. He's going to show that because of that support and because he's made statements saying they're really being treated terribly, that shows that those rioters did what he intended them to do. That's right. right. Because otherwise he'd be like, that's terrible what happened that day. I didn't intend for that to happen. You know, he's like, they were great. They're wonderful. I love you. You guys shouldn't have uh, done that. <laughs> right. know, like Evidence. Any, any normal person would be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, I didn't <laughs> yeah. say attack the Capitol. But he's no, he embraces them and their actions. It reminds me of like what that mob case. I think I was talking to you about where the guy sent him out to to put a guy in a hospital and the guy jumped out and shot him. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. the mob boss is like, bro, come on, man. I didn't tell you to sh- shoot him. <laughs> Sometimes that, that shit gets out of hand. I mean, I'm and just that saying. got him off the hook for for murder, you know, yeah. because he's he said that's he he actually ended up either whacking or punishing that guy which shows he didn't intend to kill the other guy anyway that's right. um that's it's complicated this goes toward business intent. you know what are you gonna it's, do it's very complicated evidence of the defendant's post-conspiracy embrace of particularly violent and notorious rioters is admissible to establish the defendant's motive and intent on january 6th that he sent supporters including groups like the proud boys whom he knew were angry and whom he now calls patriots to the Capitol to achieve the criminal objective of obstructing the congressional certification. And this goes to the heart of what he said in that opposition to strike the language from the indictment. You did this. You caused this riot. Yep. And that's so big. And finally, evidence of the defendant's statements regarding possible pardons for the January 6th offenders is admissible to help the jury assess the credibility and motives of trial witnesses. Because through such statements... The defendant is publicly signaling that the law does not apply to those who act at his urging, regardless of the legality of their actions. And we had a lot of that pardon dangling in the Mueller report, too. For sure. For sure. You know, you this is all going back to that, especially that shout out to the Proud Boys, um, <sighs> people he yep. knew would be angry. It's the will be wild tweet. Right. right? I mean, it's like, I don't know how he's going to deal with it. He's going to try to keep the stuff out for sure. But. And then oh. listening to the rally uh, the night before right. the Ellipse rally. Ooh, they're angry. They seem mad. They're mm-hmm. riled up. You know, you yeah. could hear it through the window of the White House. All right. We have, we still have a lot more to get to. <laughs> I've, I, to when I woke up today, I was like, kind of a slow week. And then bam, 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 we get some breaking yeah. news. And we're going to talk about that breaking news right after this break. Stick around. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. 
Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is lawyers, guns, and money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. Okay, we have some breaking news about the don't call it a gag order appeal. As you know, Judge Chutkin issued the order preventing Trump from talking about witnesses, prosecutors, court staff, and their families. But it did not prevent him from going after the judge, Joe Biden, the residents of D.C. Why he'd want to do that, I don't know. But And also the case in general. Um, Trump appealed and Judge Chutkin denied the appeal. So Trump then appealed to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. There was an expedited briefing schedule, and the three-judge panel has now come back with a decision upholding most of the original order. The only difference is that Jack Smith himself is now not protected by the order, so Trump is free to talk about him. And he probably will a lot. Like, this yeah. is that's the only guy he's allowed to go after. It's going to be honestly, nonstop I, I, Jack bashing. He's going to violate this thing immediately. Um, you think? But yeah, we can talk about that in a minute. But anyways, uh, so from the ruling, um, it says specifically, we affirm the order to the extent it prohibits all parties and their counsel from making or directing others to make public statements about known or reasonably foreseeable witnesses concerning their potential participation in the investigation or in this criminal proceeding. The order is also affirmed to the extent it prohibits all parties and their counsel from making or directing others to make public statements about one, counsel in the case other than the special counsel, two, members of the court staff and the counsel staffs, or three, family members of any counsel or staff member, if those statements are made with the intent to materially interfere with or to cause others to materially interfere with counsel's or staff's work in this criminal case, or with the knowledge that such interference is highly likely to result. We vacate the order to the extent it covers speech beyond those specified categories. See 28 U.S.C. 2106. The administrative stay issued by this court on November 3rd, 2023 is hereby dissolved. Mr. Trump is free to make statements criticizing the current administration, the Department of Justice, the special counsel, 
as well as statements that this prosecution is politically motivated or that he is innocent of the charges against him. We do not allow such an order lightly. Mr. Trump is a former president and a current candidate for the presidency, and there is a strong public interest in what he has to say. But Mr. Trump is also an indicted criminal defendant, and he must stand trial in a courtroom under the same procedures that govern all other criminal defendants. That is what the rule of law means. Oh, that's going to be cited in so many things in the future. Yeah, yeah, for <laughs> that real. That statement right there. Um, so, you know, I think this is... I totally figured this is where they'd come out. I thought they'd narrow it a little bit, but keep it in place. Um, I think the way that they really go deep on the requisite intent create will create a real a real hornet's nest for Chutkin to deal with if yeah. she decides to try to enforce this against him in some way. Or if Jack Smith tries to file a motion tries, to tries to you know it. force it. Yeah, exactly. And the court left open the possibility for Jack Smith to file a motion to for a limited gag order for him going after the jury pool. They say in a footnote, mm -hmm. since the district court did not rely on the interest in protecting jury impartiality and independence, we do not consider whether that interest might support different restrictions from those we hold uh, are, are justified to protect witnesses, counsel, court staff, etc. As a result, nothing in this opinion speaks to the district court's authority to consider additional measures to protect the jury pool and the jury should such protection prove necessary going forward. So that's like, if he goes off on the jury, keeps trying to taint the jury pool, feel free to file. We'll listen to it because we didn't consider that in right. this particular order. And then the other thing that happened is the court addressed Trump said, well, you know, you can we, we can uh, just... Forget, you know, we don't have to deal with the gag order thing if you just have the trial after the election. And and <laughs> I'll trade you one delayed trial for a gag order. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the, the, the court here addressed that. They rejected that premise, saying delays entail serious costs and frustrate the public's interest in the swift resolution of criminal charges. And that's big. Because yeah. that's going to come in handy in this whole immunity interlocutory appeal fight mm -hmm. that that the court that's, you know, he we're going to talk about this in a minute. He just appealed to the uh, to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals for his immunity, you know, with that beautiful um, order that Judge Chutkin wrote last week saying yep. you aren't a king. Um, you know, the, we're concerned about the speed with which that gets resolved because it's an interlocutory appeal it's constitutional issues it has to be decided before the trial starts and here is the same court that's going to make that decision saying we there are huge costs to delaying this trial yeah i mean that helps acknowledging it on the record in this case already is uh helpful it's a good thing that uh prosecutors i'm sure will cite to but it also lays down a little bit of a marker for the dc court like it'd be strange for another panel to come back and just kind of ignore that not yeah. that they're bound to it but it would be awkward so yeah <laughs> awkward yeah especially if if he goes on bonk to the full panel if he like pulls great and gets three trump judges or something you know yeah. Yeah. And we don't know who that panel is yet. Let's talk about that. Because last week, like mm -hmm. I said, Judge Chutkin denied Trump's motion to dismiss the entire case based on absolute immunity. Um, we called it the monarchy motion. Yep. In her outstanding, amazing, well-written, I mean, this is going to be a historical, this is going to be studied for, mm -hmm. forever because it's so good. Trump has filed his notice of appeal to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. 
and then filed a motion for a stay with Judge Chutkin, saying, you're no longer in charge of any of this, but can you give me a stay? <laughs> Which was weird. He's like, I filed my notice. <laughs> you're not the boss of me, but I'd like to take a day off. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what? All right. Yeah, so he filed notice, and he then he comes back to Chutkin and said, <clears throat> I filed notice with the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, so you're not important anymore, but I want to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't just file to stay the trial, he pending the appeal. Because remember, the, again, this is a constitutional issue. It would have to be decided before the trial starts. But he has to stay all proceedings in this matter, which at this point would include her rulings on his other motions to dismiss, statutory mm-hmm. and vindictive and selective prosecution, the SEPA proceedings, because there are uh, a few classified documents in this case that would be on hold. The jury selections begins February 9th. Those notices went out to the D.C. jury pool. That would stop. Um, All of everything, everything would stop. And he added a little dictator language to this motion to stay everything. Quote, President Trump will proceed based on the understanding and the authorities set forth herein, absent further order of the court. We will assume that this stay is in place. We're going to act like this, that there's a stay so I will You'd, assume I'm right unless I hear from you that I'm wrong. I mean, basically. even though you don't have any more say anymore, which I just said, but you do. So, I, yeah. I mean, it's just the most ridiculous uh, thing. And Trump asked Chutkin to rule on the stay within seven days. So you don't have any you have no power here. But please tell me in seven days. <laughs> and Judge Chutkin has asked, uh, replied with a minute order asking for a very quick briefing schedule. DOJ has till today, Sunday at 5 p.m., to file their opposition to the stay. And Trump has until Tuesday at five to respond. And I'm assuming she'll make a decision pretty quickly after that. Now, keep in mind, nothing is stayed in this trial at the moment. Yeah. And today, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the court above Judge Chutkin, acknowledged the receipt of Trump's notice to appeal. Now, a panel has not been assigned at, at, at the time of this recording, and a briefing schedule has not yet been ordered but like I said, in that decision on the limited gag order, they this same court was like, this needs to go fast. We need to, in the interest of just the public has an interest in a speedy trial here. It seems like this court wants this trial to go before the election, which is good. But the panel hasn't been assigned. We'll let you know when it is. But they did say that the docketing statement form, an entry of appearance form, and a transcript status report are due December 26th. That's kind of a boilerplate time and things that are due. And once the panel is assigned, I assume Jack Smith will ask for an expedited briefing schedule, uh, and the panel will then schedule it. So it could be before December 26th, might be in January. We don't know when they're going to assign it, but it seems it also depends on the judges that are assigned to the panel. But this court seems to understand the urgency. Yeah, I I think that's clear. And of course, as you mentioned, the significance of what he's asked for, it would essentially stop the clock on the trial from now until the absolute resolution of this interlocutory appeal on the constitutional issue. And that could take God knows how long, right? I think, I think, as you just laid it out, the the district court is, or I'm sorry, the the uh, DC Court of Appeals is likely to get through it as quickly as they can a couple of weeks here and there. But then if he loses and he goes to the Supremes, who knows what they choose to do. That could take forever. They can keep getting work done while this constitutional issue is sorting itself out through the appeals process. They can keep having, you know, motions on evidence and limine motions, uh, SEPA stuff. 
and I, I, there's, I don't see really any chance that Chudkin's going to go along with his request for stay. I, that's he'll probably then turn around and appeal the decision on the stay. Well, yeah, the D and the D.C. Circuit might give him a temporary administrative stay while they consider a f- more robust stay, but with what I think will be a very quick briefing schedule on on the appeal, I think it might be moot anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's really nothing happening. The only thing we're kind of waiting for right now in the next couple of weeks is, is those decisions on um, his motions to dismiss on statutory and selective and vindictive prosecution grounds, except maybe the SEPA hearings, which are I think will also go very quickly. I don't think we're looking at any kind of delay, significant delay, if these courts um, adjudicate this appeal post-haste. Yeah. But we'll see. We'll see. All right. So in the exciting news bucket for the week, the jury notices have gone out. Release the hounds. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> in an exclusive from NBC, the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia has sent prospective jurors a, quote, pre-screening form asking about their availability to appear in person on February 9th to fill out a written questionnaire for use in the jury selection process for a March 4 trial. <laughs> and they don't tell you which one, but we know what it is. <laughs> yes, we we know which one it is. They're going to have to, I mean, I can't even imagine the size of the pool. It's going to be huge, way bigger than a normal uh, jury pool for a trial because I'm sure they're anticipating. It's going to be a long trial with high profile. That is always harder to see the jury in. And of course, you know, yeah. this is what it is so the and these these notices went out before any kind of a stay has been awarded mm-hmm. if even one is awarded even if it's in a temporary administrative one so they went out they're out which is good yeah that's this good. happens this is, and you know again it's another sign so that didn't get delayed right chutkin's office is moving this thing forward in any way every way they can every day so yeah. uh, a resident in washington dc who received one of the forms in the mail monday shared an image of it with nbc news and of course, those dates line up with the February 9th and March 4th dates assigned by Judge Chutkin. So here we go. Let's, uh, that's a, 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 a rare positive piece of news for our <laughs> yeah. listeners. Off to the races. All right, time to head down to warmer climes and the SEPA battle that's heating up on the other criminal case against Donald Trump, the retention of national defense information and obstruction of justice case in Florida, also known as the documents case or the Mar-a-Lago case. And we've talked a bit on past episodes with our SEPA expert, Brian Greer, mm-hmm. about SEPA Section 4. And 99.9, 99 times, like even maybe even more than that, like almost all the time, it's usually an ex parte exercise, meaning the DOJ gets together with the judge behind closed doors and they work out how they're going to summarize or redact classified info before they hand it over uh, in discovery. Um, but, well, no, not even before, because most of this has gone over in discovery, but I think how it's going to be presented at trial. That's right. Yeah, and then it's given to the uh, the defendants to say this is how we're going to be presenting it at trial, and then they can argue. Yeah, uh, now, and the ex parte nature is important because it gives each side, it gives the prosecutors anyway, the privacy with the judge to talk about things, to explain the relevance or what might be damaged if a if a particular line of a particular document isn't redacted, what sort of damage that could result to national security. That's all stuff that's not even relevant to the defendant's trial. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's not discoverable. And so there's no reason the government should have to share that 
with defense attorneys and, a, and the defendant and then argue about it. It's just a way of protecting secrets, uh, important national security stuff. And that bit is usually non-adversarial, right? Because That's right. once it's presented to the defense, the defense can file objections oh, yeah. to how that's presented. They get a chance to do that. It's not like the judge and the government get together and say, this is how it's going to be done. And, this, and then they give it to, the, to Trump and say, this is it. This is all. This is how it's done. You, he gets a chance to object. Um, but now Trump has filed a motion uh, on December 6th to access the SEPA Section 4 filings. Quote, a motion pursuant to SEPA Section 4 is a critical juncture where the government asked the court to endorse the withholding of discoverable material by determining inter alia whether the material is relevant or helpful to the defense. In effect, prosecutors filing a motion pursuant to this provision are seeking permission to withhold Brady material. That is never true. Okay. That's not what's happening, but okay, fine. It's like his, uh, I need the missing January 6th Brady material immediately. Yeah. There's none, bro. He just, he's, he keeps going after this Brady, Jenks, um, yeah. Giglio stuff. He's just throwing out the Brady label because he's trying to characterize what is actually a very standard practice, mm -hmm. lawful practice in national security cases. He's trying to make it look like something bad. Oh, prosecutors are violating my rights again. They're withholding exculpatory information, exactly. things that show I'm innocent. They won't give it to me. Uh, they goes on to say, these motions require the court to stand in a defendant's shoes, predict defenses the defendant has not yet presented, as an entitled to develop and modify until the case is submitted to the jury for deliberations, and protect important defense rights to exculpatory information and impeachment material. Now, Trump gives only three examples of times when the courts have denied a SEPA section for ex parte um, that it be ex parte, and mm -hmm. none of them really are relevant to this case. He's also he's also asking that Walt Nauta gets access to all the classified material. What? And and then Walt's like, this mm -mm, I don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> this boggles my mind. He lists other proceedings that aren't ex parte. He's like, hey, there's FOIA cases and that that aren't ex parte. There's habeas petitions. They are the some FISA proceedings aren't ex parte. Like what? Like hey hey Andy, my last lab results at the VA weren't ex parte, so SEPA Section Four filing shouldn't be either. <laughs> it's just it's just weird. He then argues local rules against sealing, which also have nothing to do with SEPA stuff. That's irrelevant to SEPA proceedings. That it doesn't apply. Like you know how most courts are like. Um, like I'm thinking of the Judge Beryl Howell stuff and the Judge Boesberg stuff up in D.C. Like the courts, they're loathe to to keep things sealed. And as soon as they can, they like to unseal stuff. And so he's saying, hey, you like to unseal stuff all the time, courts. How about these SEPA Section 4 classified yeah. documents to my Diet Coke valet? It's just not relevant. And and kind of ironic, coming from the guy who as president was responsible for keeping the government secrets and who notably <laughs> got up and railed about uh, going after leakers and people who misused classified <laughs> and, and how bad Hillary Clinton was for having classified on her email server. Yeah, that's the same guy who's now arguing, open the doors, judge, let the sunlight on the SEPA stuff. Well, I'm not president anymore. I don't mm -hmm. care what gets out. Um, for the foregoing reasons, President Trump respectfully submits that the court should order the special counsel's office to provide his cleared counsel. That means, you know, counsel that has the right clearances Clearance. yep. with attorney's eyes only access to all SEPA Section 4 submissions and to file redacted versions of those submissions on the public docket so that the public and the press can access the unclassified portions of the documents. Always um, fighting for the rights of the press. 
And this, yes, <laughs> this, this is kind of an inflection point in this case, isn't it? Because as I said earlier in the show, up till now, it's been nickel and dime delay, right? Like she's kind of showing her deference to Donald Trump by waiting two and a half months to issue a protective mm-hmm. order over evidence. And, you know, these these delays, delay, delay, the whole thing where she's pushing all the SEPA back and then she wants to meet again on March 1st to decide about whether a trial date needs to be pushed back. It's it's that kind of stuff. But this is appealable stuff, I think, right? If if she yeah. grants this, I think that Jack Smith can then um, have an immediate expedited triggered appeal under SEPA rules to go to the 11th Circuit and say, guys, remember me? Um, he's at it again. Yeah, absolutely. He has to do that, not just to, in, a, in a desperate effort to keep this rambling wreck on, on schedule, but also to protect, to, to avoid starting to create some sort of damaging precedent that could affect other national security cases. DOJ is not going to let um, this case take a chink out of SEPA, SEPA for them. No. And, and the 11th Circuit is not going to let classified documents go to people who aren't going to see them. They showed us that yeah. when they wouldn't allow them to go to the special master in the whole special master case that we had that was over Judge Cannon's ruling was overturned by the 11th Circuit. I'm, I'm hoping Judge Cannon knows if she rules improperly in this case, the 11th Circuit were, will overrule her again. Yes. Yeah, I agree. All right. We just have a little bit left to get to um, a new special counsel, an old special counsel, actually older, far older, um, not not in age on the earth. But as far as he's been a special counsel, we have more news about that and the Hunter Biden indictment that just came down. And then, of course, we'll take listener questions, but we're going to take a quick break. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. 
you will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Okay, welcome back. Uh, so let's jump for a minute out of the pure Jack Smith lane to cover a development that gives us what I think is a good contrast between special counsels. So I'm talking, uh, AG, of course, about David Weiss, who is the special counsel investigating Hunter Biden and who revealed yesterday that Hunter will be charged with nine counts of tax charges. So three felonies and six misdemeanors in a new indictment in California. Um and I think this raises a bunch of really good questions. Uh, but also, when you just look at how we got here to this place in the case, I think you see some pretty stark uh, contrast to the way that we've seen Jack Smith approach his work. So let's just uh, review. The typical route is investigate, indict, cooperate. Right? That's how it usually works. Investigators do their work. Prosecutors get an indictment when they think they're ready to. And only after the indictment does the defendant make it, uh, uh, an effort to come in and cooperate and plea bargain. Uh, if the defendant pleads guilty, obviously the prosecutors usually drop a few charges, and then they agree that the investigation is over, meaning we say in the biz, we call it coverage. The defendant gets coverage. He is not going to be charged you know, or face any more charges for that conduct that he's already pled guilty to. So things that happened around the same time or were generally considered part of the same activity. And the first advantage of doing that um, is that very clearly establishes on the public record what the universe of possible uh, offenses is, right? The indictment shows us what the prosecutors think they can prove. At the end of their investigation, here's what we can prove. Here's what we think we can convict this guy on. The second advantage is the world knows the entirety of what the prosecutors had and how much they were willing to give away, right? So after the plea comes out, it's publicly known, oh, they started with whatever, nine charges, 23, and 23 now, whatever, yeah, and the defendant four, yeah. agreed to plead guilty. They dropped six, and now he pleads to three, whatever. So in this case, very different path. In this case, you had a five-year investigation um, in, within which the target, as we've heard in the reporting, cooperated to some degree. He was interviewed, I believe, and he also provided some documents. Then the two sides agree on a plea agreement before an indictment, right? That is weird to, to just that piece alone, a plea agreement without a uh, preceding underlying indictment. And that, in my mind, that's what creates and leaves open the possibility for people to question and um, really project their own paranoia, frustration, whatever, on the investigation. Um, you know, it looks like not and the knowing, judge did it in this case. Yeah, the, well, the judge was like, "All right, so we got coverage. Then no more well, charges." She reveals the next piece, which is they do this silly thing about entering a, coming up with a plea agreement before anyone knows what the investigation actually revealed, which leaves open the door for people to think like, oh, he's getting a sweetheart deal or whatever. They, But fearing the political uh, fallout, prosecutors include in the indictment wording to the effect of, you get no coverage. We're going to continue investigating. In the and indictment or in the plea deal? In the plea deal. 
And right. that's the thing that blows up the police. So the judge is like, hold on a second. I've never seen this. Do you know, <laughs> Mr. Defendant Biden, y- you could get charged again. And then that, yeah. yeah, at that He's point, like, what? His, his attorneys well, were you. like, hold on a second. We didn't realize that they have the meeting, you know, they, they stop the hearing, they go have this meeting. They can't come to an agreement. She gives them a couple of weeks. And of course the end result is they can't come to an agreement because now by virtue of how David Weiss has structured this thing, it leaves both sides pissed off. And Biden's like, no, why would I plead knowing that I could probably get charged again for the same sort of stuff or similar right. related stuff? And everyone else is like, oh, this is this is a terrible thing. So I just think it's an interesting uh, case study of- it's sloppy. It's kind of sloppy. It seems to be directly related to the special counsel likely trying to insulate himself or protect himself from political pressure, which he's receiving a lot of. Um, and so doing some really unconventional things. On the other hand, look at Jack Smith, like we talked about earlier. This guy is like got the book out and is following every rule, aggressively pushing the de- pushing the deadlines, you know, asking for speedier resolutions to things. Um, but he's been very transparent. They've turned over a lot of discovery. He's trying to avoid um, he's trying to deny Trump the ability to plant any kind of landmines in the case that could slow it down later. So all special counsels not uh, created equally, apparently. No. And all discovery that's gone to Trump is like filed and numbered. And we gave you this in an annotated January 6th transcript. And we gave, you know, and Trump's like, look at all this stuff. And he's like, well, a lot of it's repeats because you asked us to include <laughs> that stuff. Um, and so, you know, that continues to go on. And, and another thing, too is that, you know, this, I think, I personally think that Abby Lowell and Hunter Biden have a pretty good case for vindictive and selective prosecution. Um, first of all, they had all this back in the plea deal. They, like, and now it's felonies? That's yeah weird. And then, I mean, you want to talk about, you know, Trump projecting, you know, every every accusation is a is an admission. When Trump says this Jack Smith thing is election interference, Jack Smith's been there for a little over a year. David Weiss has been there for five years, and five now years. we're getting an indictment? And That's election interference. Okay. Yeah, and I think uh, Abby Lowell's comments yesterday were really revealing. He said, like, here we are um, getting charged, you know, whatever, nine counts from on the same evidence that a month ago was a, a plea deal for two misdemeanors. And let's remember that all of this is based on tax finagling or whatever, tax malfeasance, let's say, that happened before 2018 and which he allegedly paid the government for in 2018. So if he takes them to the hoop on this nine count case, um, I think there's a fair chance that he beats it to be perfect. I think honest, so too. Not- I think so too. If it makes it to trial, mm-hmm. um, especially since all the public hearings and the IRS whistleblowers, quote unquote, right. I mean, that's really damaging um, for the, for the prosecution. But, you know, I mean, I'll, it's just, we have so many, there's, and, and we do have a filing from Hunter Biden to get information for rule 17 B subpoenas mm-hmm. um, that, that look like it could reveal some maybe vindictive and selective prosecution. Uh, but then, you know, then of course, David Weiss responded like he was 
filing a motion for vindictive and selective prosecution and gave him his whole defense of that argument. And so now when he files the motion, he'll know exactly what uh, yeah. David Weiss is going to object to. I thought that was pretty smart uh, on behalf of uh, Abby Lowell. But, you know, if they do vindictive and selective prosecution, it's going to be hard to prove, though, because Merrick Garland is the attorney general. Even though David Weiss was appointed by Barr and Trump and all that five years ago, Merrick Garland is the attorney general right now. And he hasn't wanted to interfere in that. He hasn't wanted to interfere in this. And that could make it look like it's not vindictive or selective prosecution because Merrick Garland is allowing it to go forward. Um, but also this indictment is a speaking indictment. There's a bunch of stuff in here. It reads like the Durham indictment, yeah. right? Like all this Russia, blah, 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 blah. And then it, with the Durham indictment. And then in this indictment, it's just he didn't pay his taxes for a few years. He eventually ended paying them. But he goes off on China and Burisma and all this kind of... He bought almost cons right. He bought exotic cars and clothes and, you know, hookers and pretty much anything except paid his taxes. There's like these smarmy kind of references and in I, there. And Little I get gratuitous. the exotic lifestyle thing because that, that showed up in Manafort's um, indictment as well. But, you know, all the China and Burisma stuff, which is just conspiracy theories, right, yeah. that, that kind of fuel what the uh, GOP Congress is trying to indict biden on which they have absolutely zero evidence of so this reads to me like a durham conspiracy theory laden uh indictment yeah um but yeah I, i'm with you in the comparison with jack smith i mean on a, on a scale like the special counsel spectrum on a scale from durham to jack smith i put david weiss down on the durham end i really do yeah if smith is a 10 and durham's a zero which is <laughs> how i would rate both of them <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I gotta give. I can't give Weiss anything better than a five at this point. I, well, I'd give Mueller like a seven and a half, and then I would give her like a four, and I yeah. would give I would give Weiss like a two. I mean, that's not bad. He he hasn't done anything to indicate like predecision or corruption or anything like that. I think this is more bumbling and like poor <laughs> decisions of strategically, you know. I, I just think he's he's uh, he ran for the for the exit door with that with that uh, premature plea agreement. And that caused all kinds of problems. Now he finds himself in this kettle of fish, which is like almost um, undoable. And he's got Abby Lowell staring at him, which has not made his life any <laughs> easier. Scary. That guy's a wolf. And they want him to testify to Congress, Hunter Biden. And yeah. if I'm Hunter Biden, I'm like, I don't know if David Weiss is done or not yet. So I got to plead the fifth on everything. Although because I'm under open yeah. criminal investigation right now. If it's if it's now and it looks like now that's going to take place in private because of course Congress doesn't want him testifying on on TV is going to make them look ridiculous. So if it's in private, I think he just goes in there and says I take the fifth to everything and just like, you know, screw you. Yeah. Yeah, he has to. Cuz I have now, to. So. I I still have I I'm a part of an ongoing open open and ongoing investigation. Yeah. Yeah. All right, time for some listener questions. What do we got? Yeah, listener questions. You're going to hit one topic this week that was uh, kind of the focus of a lot of people who wrote in. And that in, that topic is like kind of what are the what are the consequences and effects of what people think of as frivolous motions and like nonsensical filings to the court, which obviously a lot of our our listeners are feeling that way about some of Trump's motions and stuff. So from Lynn, we get, do Trump's lawyers come up with this stuff or is it just, or is Trump actually writing or directing these strategies? Rob says, what does it cost to file an appeal? How much time and money is Trump wasting on lawyer fees, court resources? And then someone who's, I don't know if this is a name or a, 
or a nickname, Paspori, uh, P-O-S-P-O-E-R-R-I, says, why is the taxpayer burdened by the costs associated with frivolous motions? So we are because it's kind of an essential piece of maintaining uh, an equal and fair justice system yeah. for everyone and due process for everyone. And not everyone, most, most, all, almost uh, litigants don't have the same access to resources that Trump does. And so the courts err very much on the side of letting people have their chance to say whatever it is they want to say and file whatever motions they want to file. There's really only two ways that courts respond to this stuff. One is, of course, sanctions. They can impose a sanction on the attorney or the the litigant, and that's a monetary fee. Uh, and they're pretty reluctant to ever do that unless it's like obviously totally over the top, baseless claims, usually around the initiation of the suit, not so much a, a motion filing. Or they can actually dismiss a suit that they think is frivolous. I actually had one that um, a person filed against me and some other people based on my prior position and uh, the court dismissed it as frivolous. Of course, she's appealing now, so it's still going on, but whatever. So that's kind (laughs) of the only arrows they have in their quiver about what to do about it. How much does it cost? Well, it doesn't cost him very much at all. There are some minimal costs associated with filing fees and certainly Trump can handle those. It depends um, on what your lawyer charges per hour. Yeah. Like a good a good federal court's appeal <clears throat> can, can you know, for a regular mid-level lawyer can cost, you know, between 10 and 20 grand. Yeah. Um, you know, all told. But if your lawyer gets, you know, 1585 an hour, like this this expert witness in the New York Attorney General trial cost him $850,000. That's why he was in court, I'm pretty sure, because he wanted to yeah. see how his $850,000 investment <laughs> paid totally. off. Yeah, your average like, guy. big name partner at a big firm in Washington, D.C. is getting north of 1500 an hour. So it doesn't mm-hmm. take long to, to end up it's, with a huge bill. It's discovery that costs an arm and a leg, I've yeah. noticed. Um, that can run into the millions in these huge cases with, with high-powered attorneys. Sure. Um, and even, and even then with, you have to sue Rudy Giuliani because he didn't pay you. Exactly. Even with the high powered attorney costing you a lot there behind every high powered attorney is a phalanx of associates <laughs> and paralegals <laughs> and the technical guy who figures out how to download all your emails and put it up into some system that's searchable and third by party the experts and, and data preservation. Discovery, it's trust- crazy. Trust, what are they called? Uh, I don't know. There was some like $350,000 charge that Rudy couldn't pay for, for just yes. a, a firm that just goes through the discovery and searches for relevant stuff. Yeah, I main, mean, maintains yeah. the data basically and can respond to uh, uh, the other side's discovery request. So it's, mm-hmm. it is wildly expensive. Uh, and I'm sure Trump is burning through tens of millions keeping this going. Yeah, and it's not all not all of its taxpayer money. The taxpayers pay for like the courts and the staff yeah. and stuff like that. We but all that stuff is paid for by um in Trump's case probably mostly uh people on social security who checked the box to give a or didn't uncheck the box and yeah. are now forced to give monthly donations uh through Redwind to the Save America pack. That's exactly. probably where most and, of it. And honestly the legal cost fees to, are being paid. The cost to us and the public. The court is there anyway. And these are salaried employees that are doing their jobs. So that cost happens. Um, but the cost is that the more time everyone has to spend on this nonsense, they're not 
moving other cases along. So other people have to wait. There's more delay overall. It slows down the docket. So there is an effect, but um, it is kind of one of the costs of having a a free and pretty fair system. So there you go. Yep. And uh, the taxpayer does pay for special counsel through a permanent fund at the U.S. Treasury, um, which, as we've said a million times, can't be defunded by Marjorie Taylor Greene. That's right. Uh, But that fund is always there also. Yep. So it's not like additional appropriations to pay for Jack Smith. So when Trump says this cost $30 million, the Mueller investigation, it was it was already there for this. <laughs> so, for sure. Uh, anyway, that is our show for the week. Uh, we we got it a little bit shorter than last week. Um, I, it still was, little. I had it under an hour before that gag order, not don't call it a gag order, uh, ruling came out um, and... Uh, that of course that 404b motion was pretty amazing so oh we'll see what we have next week um i i expect we'll get uh, a a briefing schedule for the immunity appeal i think we'll have that by the end of next week Mm -hmm. yeah they just need to assign a panel and well then we'll see what they want to do and i think maybe uh judge chutkin might um, put out her orders, her her rulings on the uh, selective vindictive prosecution and statutory uh, considerations. Um, I think she might get those out while there's no stay. Yeah, <laughs> like just get them out there. Yeah, um, we'll be able to talk about that on the next show. And uh, thank you again, patrons. We'll see you on April twentieth in D.C. We'll send that location information and RSVPs out in the new year. Uh, anything, any final thoughts before you get out of here, my friend? No, I think it's been uh, another great week and look forward to what we have next week. So we'll see everybody in a few days. Yep. We'll see you then. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. Hi, this is John Cryer and I am hosting a new seven part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns and Money. That'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, 
If I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.